Well, okay, but that's wait. That's like. Did you say the bottom line's a shot? That is not a. Sh I have a hard time believing that's a shot. Sip, sip. You love tarantula. Well, let's. I, I love is is. <laughs> might be a little strong of a word. All right. I love. The feeling. Lasagna. I don't. <laughs> I love beer. <laughs> that's right. Cheers to two years worth of work, getting Mr. Hansen on the show. Yes. I am retired as of December 31st. Congratulations. Retired what? Passing the torch. To what? No, you're not. <laughs> yep, it's your turn to book guests. <laughs> okay, well, then it's your turn uh, to host. have to ask all the questions. Oh, shit. Okay, I'll keep booking guests. Yeah, I, that's what I thought. <laughs> This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Banter, banter. Wow, look at all the banters. All the bantering going on. Uh, yeah, you can tell bells. energy is high today. Why is that, Ryan? Because, because we're all high today now that marijuana is legal in Canada. <laughs> uh, we, have, we have yet. That would be a show. It's all I really was waiting. I knew you'd come up with that it's idea. It's all getting really high. There you go, the anniversary show this year. Yeah, we'll invite Elon Musk. <laughs> that's right. Uh -huh. We'll just see where things go. Uh, no, that's not correct. Uh, why are we so excited, Ryan? Because we are welcoming to the show, finally, Rick Hansen. We are very wait, excited. the Rick Hansen? The Rick Hansen. Surely not. The guy that traveled the world in a wheelchair, raising funds. 34 countries. Yep. How many miles? 40,000. Yeah, I think that's right. 40,000. 34 countries. Went around the world in a wheelchair. Yep. Uh, he's got honorary degrees up the wazoo. He he's got he's got a degree that's not honorary up the wazoo. Too. That's right. He was the first uh, first person in a wheelchair that uh, graduated with a physical education degree from the University of British Columbia. Woo woo. What else? What else? What else is there? He's a he has his own day. He has his own day. He's got his own day. Like how, how many okay. people can say that? He's got Rick Hansen day. That's true. Which is, if we'd had more time with him, I would love to ask him whether or not he got to pick the day. <laughs> like when you get a day named after you, do you get to be like, eh, I want to be February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day? You could ask him. Or they just give you one. It's like, ah, oh, we've got May 28th open. How do you feel about that? Like, <laughs> okay, that's great. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Multi-metal Olympian, Paralympian. That's right. Yeah. He's, In marathons. He's, he's done marathons. He, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, he has been an incredible advocate, uh, of course, for accessibility and inclusive and, and universal design and inclusivity for over, well over 20 years. Uh, he's he, the foundation. I mean, he, of course, he founded the Rick Hansen Foundation, which, of course, we'll be talking a lot about. Um, but, he, you know, it's he's all they're also involved in a lot of research for 
uh, spinal cord injuries as well. So Absolutely. And if you haven't watched him or know about him, check out the Rick Mercer report on YouTube because Rick went bungee jumping. What? <laughs> yep. Him and Rick went bungee really? jumping. Yep. Okay. Oh, I didn't say that. Couldn't, you couldn't pay me. <laughs> so he really is a Canadian hero. Absolutely. Um, and we are super excited and honored to be talking with him today. Still can't believe we got him on the podcast, to be honest. It's not here how, yet. <laughs> how much money did he raise on that Man in Motion tour? Was it, is it, it $25 was million? 20, yeah, or something like 25. It was a lot of money. A lot of money. Mm-hmm. Over two years on, on, on the road in his wheelchair. That tour took, I think. It was like just over two years. Yeah. Yeah. Did Now, did you guys, did, you guys <laughs> live down here at the time? I mean, I was... I didn't. I, I didn't, but... Yeah. Oh, you didn't write? No, I was in Alberta. Okay. So, Steve, did, I mean, did you see him at all on, while he was on his tour? Not even once. Because didn't he start? He started the tour here. Yeah. He started here, finished it here. Right. But, uh, yeah, no, I, every, everything that I saw, I saw on uh, TV. I see. Yeah. But the streets were lined with people when he did arrive. Yeah. I can't remember what was going on. Was I in school? What, what year was that? Um, he's March of 85. He, he started and, uh. Yeah, so when he, he started, I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I was in junior high. And when he finished, I would have been in the, in probably... In he finished. <clears throat> yeah, 87. I would have been working. Yeah. I would have been working. Because mm. mm. 86, I was going to computer school. Mm-hmm. That was when Expo was going on. Mm-hmm. Right. That was, that was all kinds of fun. And uh, yeah, so by 87, I was uh, fixing photocopiers. Right. So there's definitely, we're going to link to a bunch of articles and accomplishments and footage of Rick Hansen, but definitely do a search on YouTube. He's done TED Talks, very motivational speaker, you know, very, very encouraging guy to, to take a listen to. Mm-hmm. And he's got his own song. He's got his own theme song. He does. Yeah. Uh, wait, wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. And it's not like me where I've got to do it myself, you know, <laughs> just walk song? around going, do, 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 do. <laughs> uh wait now what is the song called is it is it it's called, called man Sa- in Mo- it's called saint elmo's fire man in motion right yeah i must have got caught in some sort of a weird licensing thing where because it was it was written for rick hansen by john parr and then they Foster. attached it they attached it to that crappy movie with Rob Lowe. With Rob Lowe. So they must have had to like rename it St. Elmo's Fire. Because it really has nothing to do with the movie. I wonder how that all happened. Well, it's got the line, <laughs> I can see St. Elmo's Fire burning in me. And I'm sure somebody in Hollywood went, St. Elmo's Fire. Oh, no, you know what? I bet you they, I bet you they threw <coughs> that, that line in just because it was like, well. There is a YouTube video where John Parr and David Foster were in studio talking about this song. And Rick wheeled in. Uh-huh. And... I think that's kind of what gave John Parr the motivation to use that song for the tour or Rick the motivation to use that song for the tour. Yeah, I forget yeah. how it went, but see again, if we, if there's a two hour podcast, I'd ask him about that, but yeah, well, let's have I would, I'd be curious. I'd be curious to know whether or not he hates that song. <laughs> Is that your ringtone, Rick? Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, I hate that effing song. Everywhere I go for the past 26 years. He's been playing it. I yeah. wheel in and what's playing? I can't get it out of my head again for another yeah. week. Right. Flies into town to do <laughs> no, a TED Talk and they start playing that song. Yeah. And, yeah. I want to <laughs> wheel in to Flash Pots and Thunderstruck, but no. <laughs> 
No, it's it's. <laughs> oh my God! It's two minutes. Open the room. Open the room. Open the room. He can't get through. He's gonna leave. Don't say anything that's gonna embarrass anybody. I don't think I'm capable of saying anything <laughs> but things that will embarrass somebody. Like you want a filter on now? We're <laughs> <laughs> gonna have to build a filter. <laughs> Yeah, we've been incapable of coming up with any filters so far. So <laughs> why would today be any different? I bet she's in the room listening. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really, right? That's what I would do. Wondering, wondering why his people hook up with these idiots. <laughs> I need new people. That's right. Yeah. There's going to be some firings at the Rick Hansen Foundation tonight. <laughs> Hi, Rick. Thank you so much thanks, for joining thanks. us today. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. Uh, appreciate that, Don. And is this Rob? No, this is Ryan, but I will introduce you to Rob. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm very well, Rick. So joining me in the room, I have Rob Mano. Hello there. Hi, Rob. How are you? I I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. And we have Steve Barkley. Hello there. I, I just Hi, want to make Steve. sure, is this, is this the real Rick Hansen? We, we we have a running we we have a running gag on our show because uh, we we actually thought we were going to have you on what how how long ago about, about two years ago about about two years ago Ryan had scheduled a a Rick Hansen it a turned, Rick Hansen it turned out to be entirely the wrong guy he was a an American clinical psychiatrist that's, that's funny yeah so when I finally connected with Don and and we were able to to book you I was tickled pink so I'm just over the moon that you're able to join us today Rick. Oh, well, thanks for thinking of me, and I uh, really appreciate it. I uh, love what you guys do, and uh, you know, it's an honor. Well, the honor's all ours. Absolutely. Yeah, so we, we understand you're driving right now? Uh, sort of off and on. Yeah, just, I'm just coming out of a, a high school uh, presentation, and so I'm, I'm actually in a parking lot at the moment waiting for rush hour to, in the parking lot to disappear so I can safely make my move. Okay. <laughs> well, perfect. See, if, if you're driving, we can just cross off the question where it's like, what's your favorite curse word? So just, well, that, that'll become apparent yeah. so, during rush hour. Uh, if, you, if, you, if, you have, if you hear a crash. <laughs> there may be a 20-minute pause while you uh, exchange insurance information. <laughs> well, listen, you know, it, it, it's, you know it's, it's really tough to even know where to start uh, because, you know, you, it, it's such a... You've got such a rich past of, of being an advocate for accessibility. And of course, that's what, what the podcast is all about. So, you know, when we were coming up with a list of questions, we, we really didn't even know what to start, where to start. But uh, let's, let's go way back. Let's start way at the beginning and talk a little bit about uh, your accident and the, and the immediate aftermath and how that sort of changed your attitude and how it kind of helped build the person that you you are today with all these achievements under your belt. You know, when I was 15, uh, it was 1973. I hate to say it, it was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was a typical Canadian kid and in many ways probably uh, holding typical attitudes, you know, Canadian attitudes about people with disabilities, but, which was largely back then fairly negative, fairly stereotypic, uh, that if you had a disability, you were in trouble and, uh, and you wouldn't have much hope or possibilities to do much and would probably, you know, be pitied a lot. And 
And so I carried that uh, baggage when uh, it was my turn. And when I had that uh, fateful accident, coming back from a fishing trip and I was hitchhiking and got a ride in the back of a pickup truck with uh, a driver who uh, lost control and the truck rolled and it threw me back first against a big steel toolbox, broke my back, damaged my spinal cord. And before I knew it, the local doctor was telling me that I would never walk again. And uh, for a young kid who was involved in the outdoors, every sport you can imagine, and uh, my whole life revolved around physical activity and the use of my legs, uh, that was almost uh, unfathomable. Uh, it was almost like a death sentence. Uh, I, I thought that my whole life had been shattered along with my spine, and uh, all my hopes and dreams seemed to have disappeared in that moment. Uh, and it was a really terrible period, and it was you know, obviously four months in hospital, three months in rehab, and then going back home to, you know, try to think about moving from a, a, a dark canvas of no information and perspective of my new life to um, trying to gain certain, you know, pinpricks of light and borders and textures and colors of hope. And that could only come not then in a world that didn't have the information age, it only could come through word of mouth and through you know, supportive family, healthcare providers, and then eventually role models who had been there for me. And probably the most powerful moment for me was to meet a role model who profoundly changed my life, and his name was Stan Strong. He, he was injured in the 30s uh, when a tree fell on him as a policeman driving through Stanley Park. Oh, jeez. And, uh, and he was, um, you know, and that class of, you know, spinal injury back then, uh, you know, most people died and that was right around the time they invented uh, antibiotics and new medical treatment. And he actually survived, but he laughed at my four months and said it was for him, it was four years and chuckled because there were no rehab centers. And, yeah. and, uh, and so he decided to keep moving forward and, and he reached back to become a peer counselor and supporter and and uh, encourage the uh, next generation of kids like me to not give up. And pretty much the, the biggest lesson from Stan was that, you know, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with it. And there's a uh, space between your ears that, uh, that needs to be exercised, and it's largely about attitude and perspective. And, uh, and that's the sovereignty that you own. And all I saw with this guy was uh, a positive attitude. He had a great smile. He, he, he lived uh, a tough life, but he saw hope and beauty and uh, meaning in, in, uh, in every day. And, and I thought, God, if he can do it, so can I. And uh, I want to be like him. And he, uh, he had a powerful impact on my life. That's fantastic. We, you know, we see this in, in a lot of different, uh, uh, disability groups, the importance of, of not just advocacy, but, but, uh, but mentorship. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've had a couple of organizations, um, on the podcast, like, uh, Blind Beginnings is one that we, uh, we, we love, uh, because they provide mentorship opportunities for, uh, families with little kids who are, who are, uh, blind and visually impaired. And that, that connection to, to be able to connect with somebody who has, you know, a similar sort of condition, but, but a, a really positive attitude is just so incredibly empowering to people. 
It really is. And then, of course, when you're able to then engage through common endeavor to forge a relationship, as I was with him, because he was also the team manager of our wheelchair basketball team, uh, well, of Ali wheelchair basketball team called the Vancouver Cable Cars. And uh, he ended up recruiting me and and then eventually encouraged me to recruit uh, others. And I recruited a guy named Terry Fox. And mm-hmm. uh, he just lost his leg to cancer. And uh, we had this uh, amazing dream team of of, uh, of great athletes, but also uh, we had a mentor uh, in Stan Strong who encouraged us to pay it forward. Uh, and and that relationship, uh, you know, was uh, was a long term relationship. And you know, his character, uh, you know, and the integrity uh, that that he had was forged uh, throughout the highs and lows, uh, you know, on the journey together. And you know, deep respect for him. So let me let me sort of switch switch over and talk a little bit about. Uh, sports itself. Uh, obviously, before the accident, you were you were a very active kid. But how large of a of a role did did sports play after your accident? And how important did you find it to be to have a real passion for something to help deal with both healing and rehabilitation? Well, you know, I I really felt that I was you know an athlete and. And so when my accident happened and not being familiar with Paralympic or adapted sports, I, I, I thought that chapter was closed. And it was my physical education teacher and coach, former coach, uh, when I was, uh, he was my volleyball coach. And, and he, he, he made me realize that there was, you know, adapted sports. And, uh, and I, but I still had a strong stigma about that, that it wasn't real sport. And, wasn't really too keen when he sort of tried to encourage me to get involved and in one of our conversations he was a bit frustrated he kind of sort of took a dictionary out and he because he would ask me why I wasn't interested in oh, you know it's special it's not the same it's different and blah 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 and came up with every excuse and he finally opened the dictionary and he said uh, so why don't you look up the definition of athlete and so I did and he says so does it does it say anything about whether you can use your legs or not I kind of went, no. <laughs> he went, well, you want to be an athlete? Then, hey, it's totally up to you. And, uh, you know, he made me realize that, yeah, that uh, that sort of limiting perspective was uh, literally handicapping me from getting engaged in the things I love most, you know, being able to set goals and maybe go as far as I could as an athlete and, uh, and have uh, a rich and meaningful experience in life uh, as I'd always had and, and as I'd always dreamed of. And thanks to Bob Redford, my, my phys ed teacher and my coach, uh, he shifted my paradigm. And then when Stan came along to recruit me into wheelchair basketball, I, I actually was able to readily accept it as an incredible offer. And then when I came to that team, I was blown away by the talent of the athletes. I mean, so it just verified exactly what Bob had been saying to me, which is that, uh, you know, it really is, it's just that you're transferring, you know, from legs to the chair and using your arms. And these guys were doing circles around me. They were just uh, incredible athletes and made me realize I had a long way to go and I wanted to be like them. And, uh, and uh, and it was an amazing journey, and it uh, it really helped rebuild a sense of uh, of, of 
self-esteem and uh, and worth and made me realize that uh, I was actually able to be the athlete and the person that I always wanted to be and I didn't need it need to be cured in order to be whole as a human being and that was uh, yeah it was it was transformational in those early years and and then of course decided that I wanted to go as far as I could and and then decided to focus in on wheelchair track and marathoning and uh, extended for about a decade representing my country uh, on the national team and went to Paralympic Games and to World Championships and, and ultimately to the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. And uh, it was uh, just uh, an amazing experience. I, I feel so grateful. I really think that uh, adapted sports get a short shift from, from the media. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, a good friend who uh, was a, um, a blind downhill skier and went to, went to see her ski in, in Whistler. And uh, uh, there were a lot of other events that came down that, that hill, but the one that, that really impressed me were the, uh, were the uh, what do they call them? Sit skiers? Sit skiers. Those guys are crazy. They're absolutely <laughs> loons. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, you, you would think that, that the media would show more interest in, in that, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff because it's, it, it's, it's riveting. It's absolutely riveting when you see those guys because they are just killing it. And they're, you know, they're really, they're, they're going for it. They're going at a thousand miles an hour. And when they wipe out, you're just terrified. It's, it's better than NASCAR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like like any other sport, and 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 I think that's exactly right. And one of the challenges is that again we're 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 sort of faced with stigmas, and and uh, you know, sport is a is a powerful mirror for how society views itself. And you know, it's kind of wonderful that you know that Paralympic Games exist, and uh, you know, and I've been a tremendous beneficiary of the games, and. And uh, I think they, they do so much for the sport. But sometimes uh, labels uh, mean a lot. And uh, you have to start to examine certain things and wonder, uh, just wonder anyway, and, and open uh, the space for the conversation. If you had parallel games, parallel Olympic games for um, people of color or of religion or for women, um, how do you think that would go? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And and so you know, but we have and readily accept parallel Olympic games for people with disabilities. And uh, what do you think that says, really, underneath it all? Mm-hmm. A couple of things. It says they don't belong in the real games. We have to set up parallel ones. It says uh, that they actually don't happen during the same time as the real Olympics. And as a matter of fact, we deploy all these, uh, you know, all these, you know, media resources to cover all these, uh, amazing Olympic athletes. And then we, we get the sort of the second string, um, you know, kind of special interest media to cover parallel Olympic games and the athletes. And, and yet you're right. Those athletes, uh, not all of them, most of them and most of those sports are really uh, elite and uh, and exceptional and and so uh, they they deserve to be promoted and highlighted at the level that they truly are and yet they'll never really belong 
no matter how hard you try, uh, because the the uh, the games are different. Uh, they're they're separate. Right. And and so and so I think I think we have to keep examining those models. And and yet there are world police and fire games, and there are world um, Highland games, and right. you know uh, you know world gay games and world blogger games, and and there's a lot of Olympic athletes in those games, but we don't really hear much about them because the focus is on the cultural difference. And, uh, and that's the purpose of those games. And so perhaps there's uh, tremendous roles and value in having world disability games and, uh, you know, and, and cultural uh, camaraderie and uh, fellowship, or you see it in the, the Invictus games yeah, uh, for right. disabled veterans and, uh, there's some incredible athletes there, but really it's about the, uh, you know, the service and the price that these incredible, you know, champions have paid, you know, in, in support of their country and the world. And they, they get recognized through the vehicle of sport. And, and yet, um, but there's only one Olympic games and, uh, and, and, uh, and so therefore maybe we need to just keep rethinking those things and, symbols make a difference and they matter <clears throat> and so and if you don't I'm not suggesting that you abolish Paralympic Games but there's there's barriers that embed and entrench you know with labels and uh, and structures that sometimes you know maybe maybe there's a way to uh, to bridge the Olympic and Paralympic Games with uh, you know some uh, you know a certain select group of uh, of events that uh, that kind of pave the way or there's other options to consider to try to intensify the media approach so that maybe the coverage uh, is magnified and uh, overcome some of these, uh, you know, obstacles, but the conversation will lead openly to probably better solutions. Yeah. I, I, I know from, from trying to follow different, uh, different sports, uh, oftentimes what you end up with is, is, you know, instead of having television coverage, you've got a, internet feed somewhere from mm. you know a venue that has a poorly placed camera and you know maybe maybe somebody doing commentary but uh but yeah there, there's no there's no parody in the coverage that's certain and, and uh well, um, well yeah exactly and of course what that does is then that just reinforces the stigma that it's not really great athletics because it's not covered like the right. real show is and so yeah which of course when you, is but wrong. when you cover you know whether it's a, a you know, uh, whether it's fine goal ball or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, club rugby, uh, uh, or wheelchair basketball or, you know, those downhill skiers. I mean, they, they, and you cover it right. And you've got the cameras, the angle, the lighting, the commentary, you focus on the actual athletes, uh, and someone knows the sport, all of a sudden you bring it to life and people go, damn, that's cool. Yes, <laughs> I want to see more. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, we we have to talk a little bit about, of course, about the Man in Motion tour. Um, and we were we were we were talking a little bit, you know, before the mics came on about, you know, because we all grew up in the '80s, and if you grew up in the '80s in Canada, you know, you heard about the tour, absolutely. It, 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 you know, it was in every household. So, could you could you walk us through a little bit of of how it actually came about and what it kind of meant for you in terms of your own personal growth? Yeah, I was really, really fortunate that, that you know, that's that my dream of wheeling around the world. It started as, uh, in many ways, a fantasy in the rehab center, just wondering if I could actually 
do what I'd imagined before my accident, which is to bike around the world and now do it uh, in a wheelchair, maybe a trailer behind the chair. And uh, my buddies would be in their bikes and off we'd go. And it didn't seem possible when I'm struggling to go down the hall in the rehab center in the chair and every push uh, was an effort. But nevertheless, uh, it was uh, just a, an idea. And uh, then I represented my country in wheelchair marathoning and physically realized uh, that, yeah, I could probably do that, but there wasn't really a purpose in it. It was just something that would take a lot of time and uh, didn't have the same romantic uh, currency that it maybe did when I was younger. But I was inspired by Stan Strong to have a philosophy of paying it forward and making a difference. And I was inspired by my teammate and friend, Terry Fox, and a guy who, who decided to try to run across the country to help cure cancer. And, uh, and, and yet there was a secondary impact of his journey that he didn't intend, which is people were reframing the way they viewed people with disabilities. They actually saw ability in that uh, journey. And so I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe uh, if I wheeled around the world uh, with a message to try to improve uh, perceptions of people with disabilities, focus on ability, uh, remove some of those stigmas and barriers that I'd had to wrestle with and that I saw in the lives of many others and they fo as they focused on me and my Paralympic uh, colleagues, and then maybe help remove barriers and, and, uh, and, and, and liberate potential. Uh, maybe even maybe even find a cure for spinal cord injury. And so that became the motivation. And uh, all of a sudden, I started paying attention to this dream. And But even then, didn't really think it was possible because wheeling around the world in a wheelchair, oh my gosh, the, uh, the things that would be necessary to make that happen, you know, in the 80s when the world was so large, disconnected, inaccessible, no technology to communicate really, um, so it really took a, a series of champions and potential sponsors uh, to actually put it all together. And, uh, you know, World Expo coming to Vancouver in the uh, in the mid 80s, uh, maybe they would be a sponsor. You know, my good friend who was with Nike Canada uh, and, of course, my coach and, uh, you know, and my buddies and my cousin. And all of a sudden there was a critical mass of potential supporters where I finally blurted it out. I'm going to wheel around the world. And, uh, and that was the beginning of holy shit. <laughs> what, have I, what have I just said? What have I got myself into here? And uh, how the heck are we really going to make this happen? But by then I made the commitment and uh, we struggled for a year and a half to two years to put it all together. And when we left Oak Ridge, very first day on March 21st of 85, we were underfunded, unorganized, and all hell was about to break loose, <laughs> but uh, we were going to give it a shot. You know, I was, uh, I, I, I live in Burnaby, just, just uh, the shy of the uh, Coquitlam border, and I, I went down Thermal Hill the other day. And I thought about you coming up that hill. I remember, <laughs> I remember watching the, uh, the news following you up that hill, and you just pounded up that hill. Um, you, uh, th that trip was transformative for you, wasn't it? Cause it, it, I mean, you, you left and, and when you came back, you were just, you were, you were a monster. <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was, you know, swim or sink and it was a good thing. Probably we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into because <laughs> yeah, the, the mountain was pretty, pretty high and, and, uh, yeah, it was a struggle, immense struggle every single day just to, just to keep going 
let alone to try to imagine and work with the team that I had to to try to make a difference and try to get better every day, try to fix problems, try to see examples of success and and how people were caring about the idea, the message, how it made a difference in the lives of a person with a disability or money that might have been raised and and you know it really it 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 ultimately was a sense of providence really um, that emerged at key points where certain individuals or you know moments uh, of coincidence or <clears throat> whatever that ultimately kept things moving forward and moved them sequentially to different levels even in spite of the times when I wanted to quit uh, I would uh, eventually get inspired or talked back off the limb and uh, and keep going and uh, and then yeah those the last day when I went up Thermal Drive in Coquitlam, the hill was steep, but the momentum was so huge that it just literally sucked me up that hill and uh, and across the finish line. And it was like a dream had come true. I was living the dream, and uh, and it was amazing to raise twenty six million dollars um, to generate awareness and and think that all that time and effort was worthwhile because all the struggle because I was surrounded by an amazing team that people had made the difference at these key milestones and, and that ultimately it was worth it. And then I was breaking through that finish line and at welcome home Rick and above it, there was a little sign that said, the end is just the beginning. You can imagine how I thought at that point. <laughs> hey, we're done, man. <laughs> Easy for you to I say, imagine you, your plan was to nap for about five days at that point. <laughs> yeah. But in reality, it was it was true. You know, uh, the, the person was pretty clear on the future that tour was over. Yeah, okay, you know, you made, raised some money, created some awareness, but the world, you know, really hadn't changed that much, and and therefore, you know, you know, it was a baby step. If you if you if you kept, you know, if you cared about the outcome, then uh, maybe you should, uh, you know, maybe rethink going back to the Paralympic Games and. Uh, regaining your world title and uh, maybe you should think about uh, staying on the journey. And uh, that was a pretty, uh, pretty transformational period after the tour was over to kind of reflect on that and realize that I'd been profoundly changed by the experience seeing, you know, obviously progress, but seeing, you know, the magnitude of the challenge, listening to and meeting people with disabilities and, uh, and, you know, seeing the obstacles and uh, and also the possibilities, and so I, I decided to yeah, stay engaged and gave up my athletic career and uh, kept moving forward. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about um, the founding of the Rick Hansen Foundation, um, and and tell us a little bit about um, what its mandate is. Yeah, well, we we had generated a, a fund and we had a responsibility to manage that fund and uh, and and also make sure that it was dispersed to, across Canada because the funds were raised in Canada towards the end of our tour and and then and then also uh, start to to think about you know we established a, a foundation to be able to um, you know handle that mandate and responsibility uh, a board of directors uh, you know as a volunteer I I made sure that was set up and I felt confident that you know that they could do that but after Ten years, you know, uh, to continue to support uh, spinal cord research and, and accessibility for people with disabilities, 
you know, I mean, those are, I mean, most people criticize me from a business point of view that, that, Hey, um, can't you just focus on one dream? <laughs> focus on two things that are like massive. And I'm going like, but you know, I, I, from an authentic place, I started, that was my, that was my, my vision. You know, I, I, I believe that one day there will be a cure for spinal injury and that the next generation uh, of people with spinal injury will walk again and will have full recovery and is possible. But I also believe that in the meantime, you know, there's so many people who happen to have a disability that, that really have ability and, and that the barriers that exist are limiting them from being full and contributing citizens, uh, you know, and, and ultimately, uh, I care about that as well. And therefore, I'm going to try to deal with both. And after 10 years, you know, uh, we, we decided to reevaluate the success of the foundation. And, uh, you know, I since established myself uh, as, a, as a leader uh, through a fellow position at the University of British Columbia in accessibility. And, uh, and you know, and, and we, we looked at the foundation and they'd been it had been distributing interest uh, out to a lot of worthy causes, but you know, $26 million, um, you know, with uh, you know interest rates uh, dropping <laughs> and the needs moving forward, we, we were actually measuring our success based on dollars out in activity versus outcome, and uh, and we really weren't getting scale. Our our you know the the legacy of the tour was starting to dissipate, and I wasn't really you know, cause I was busy doing my thing. I wasn't really collaborating with the foundation and, um, we decided to, you know, form a strategy uh, after 10 years that if, if we're going to really uh, care about those two dreams, we're going to have to realize that we need to get more focused, more strategic and, uh, and converge our energy into, uh, into some big milestone efforts and move the bar. And so we upped our game and, uh, I, uh, I, I uh, collaborated formally for my position at UBC with the foundation, as did the university, and we decided to really put a focus on, not abandon accessibility, but put a focus on spinal cord research for a while and, uh, and looked at where the barriers were. And the first barrier was that there was, there was, it was on the corner of everybody's desk and we needed a global uh, spinal cord research center in Vancouver, right where the clinicians were, that would house 300 of the best researchers and clinicians and uh, and then make it a strategic focus rather than, you know, uh, a, a fragmented uh, discipline that was, uh, you know, behind the door for almost every uh, opportunity. And so we did that and we put together about $20 million worth of endowments to help support researchers and, uh, and engage to bring in um, tens of millions of dollars of support to connect uh, a network across the country, which then became the Rick Hansen Institute, which was a, a global network that harmonized language, measured the same things, got everybody to, uh, you know, to share and to collaborate. And, and now, um, you know, all these years later, the, you know, the Institute is, uh, is arm's length, uh, separate board of directors, CEO, um, you know, unifying in places like China, Israel, Australia, India, um, you know, the States, Europe, and, and they're actually accelerating progress because of that innovation. And, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy about the work that they're doing and, and as founder still involved in supporting them, but, um, I've turned my attention and the foundation has to 
to really go after the accessibility agenda. There's so many big barriers out there, but we decided to to tackle the built environment and and really uh, try to try to standardize the built environment and to move it out of the hands of just the advocates and put together a, a professionally accredited um, curriculum that people could get uh, a designation if they were trained and uh, and let architects, engineers, city planners, the uh, you know people in real estate and advocates all end up with uh, the designate and uh, they could rate buildings, they could uh, see if they're accessibility certified or accessibility certified gold and keep innovation going so that we don't get stale on an old standard and uh, eventually make it globally relevant. And so that uh, that's uh, as founder and CEO of Rick Hansen Foundation, that's, uh, you know, the other side of the equation. And, you know, we, we want to really go deep on that barrier and break through. Uh, we recognize there are many other barriers out there that need to be uh, attacked, but uh, we want to use that same model we use with the spinal cord research uh, strategy, which is to sort of uh, create a common language, common measurement framework, and then uh, get engagement from many other sectors other than the disabled community uh, where, you know, governments and private sector could really get behind what we're doing and and accelerate progress and get there faster. So that's kind of where we're at today. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, coming up to my you know, 62nd birthday next year and, and uh, you know, uh, looking forward to elevating to founder of both the Institute and the, and the, uh, and the foundation and still playing a role uh, on those two big dreams where I can add value, uh, you know, uh, hopefully till, uh, till the day I die, because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, it's always been deeply ingrained in my DNA. And, uh, and I'm sure that I'll also be a source of new ideas and innovation to challenge both of those entities and others uh, to, uh, you know, to think out of the box, because that's, uh, that's kind of what drives me. So let me ask you a little bit about about some of the programs because I know that that both you and the foundation work a lot with schools and with young people. Um, what's the message that you bring to them? Well, we decided uh, quite a while ago. I always wanted to be a teacher, and uh, and uh, the, you know graduated from UBC in physical education, and was on that track to be a coach as well, and and uh, clearly got <laughs> got distracted with the tour and. And uh, you know the bigger, bigger agenda. But I've always believed that you know that, that education and youth uh, are the key to a you know a multi generational journey, an ultra marathon of social change. And we wanted to embed a school program that would uh, start here in Canada, maybe eventually be a global program, and and help be a resource for teachers to help um, use the metaphor of not just you know, uh, our tour or my journey, but more importantly, the, the message of accessibility and inclusivity uh, to be a, a metaphor for, um, you know, integrating curriculum lessons and outcomes and, and how could youth be, uh, you know, inspired and educated to be open-minded, uh, to be inclusive, to not leave anyone behind, uh, to remove barriers and be barrier busters and and so uh, we have uh, a school program that's in uh, every province and territory. We, we, we're not in every school yet. Uh, we're going to continue to strive to do that and have it be normalized. But you know, to uh, 
build a sense of social justice and and inclusivity and and get get youth to you know look at their schools or look at their communities and and have the inspiration to get out there and uh, identify and remove barriers and work with us and others to to do so. We have ambassadors that you know uh, from all walks of life and all kinds of people who have disabilities that show ability to come in and tell their story to many of them are students themselves and and, uh, and to turn the table on on the equation you know to show ability and and uh, to be a rally cry for folks to see and spot the barriers and uh, stay on the game and keep moving forward yeah I mean especially when you when you consider that you know the the kids who are in school now I mean they're they're those are the builders of tomorrow those are the politicians of tomorrow so the more the, the less of a I guess of a mystery uh, or a stigma that they see disability as is is only going to benefit. Absolutely, and, and of course, you know it's the living community. Uh, you know, Canadian schools are truly that, and you'd be shocked at how many schools still in Canada, though today, uh, are not accessible. <laughs> um, and or if they are, you can get into maybe a classroom, but can you get in? Can you get up onto the stage um, to be part of drama? Right. And right. oh. Um, why is it that we hire able-bodied actors and actresses to play great roles and win Academy Awards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, why is that? Well, you yeah. know, if we're not including kids in drama, they're not being inspired, you know, to, uh, you know, to think that they can they can be uh, a tremendous actor and not just be typecast in a disability role. Well, then, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's not often you see really cool movie or series like glee out there that you know that just showed the kid in the chair you know as being one of the buds and mm. he was a dancer and a cool dude and uh you know it wasn't a big deal so uh yeah these are these are super important outcomes that i think are important and you just have to look around and might be it might be the the lunchroom you know well if the lunchroom in, in a school is not accessible how can you hire a teacher with a disability right, yeah. <laughs> or the port the portable isn't accessible. Oh well, then you have to go to a different class. You can't follow your class or the playground. Playground? Yeah, like that means the kid can't get up there, or a teacher, or a parent, or a grandparent, and uh, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so there's a lot of these things, and you don't have to go too far to go just across the street to look at the ball diamond, and uh, you know you can't get into the dugout. <laughs> You know, if you're a coach or an umpire, you can't even get into the, you know, into the field of play. Uh, and so how can you be included? Or if you're a hockey player or you were a hockey player and now you're a coach and you have a disability, but you can't get behind the bench. Or if you're a media journalist and can you get into, you know, the media box, uh, you know, in a, in a big arena or a multi-major sporting complex. I mean, these are these are shocking realities that still exist in today's society, and we haven't formalized the concept of accessibility and inclusion, and we also haven't sort of uh, normalized the design process and the culture right. and the expectation that it's not just getting in and out of the door and going to the washroom and being a passive participant. It's actually being a full participant and a contributor to the economy, to culture, and to society, and that's a new model of inclusion that uh, you know that emerged, you know, beyond the 80s and the 90s, uh, and you know, it's today's 
today's expectation, but the gap from that expectation to reality is still pretty, pretty big. So we've got to figure out how to bust through and create, you know, these these big breakthroughs in some areas that are most people with disabilities in and rising tides float all boats. You know, and those examples you gave about getting behind the bench or into the dugout of a ball diamond are all obvious examples that, you know, I, you know, I'm totally blind and I never even really thought about. So are we making headway? We are. And, and that's one of the, that's one of the things we are, but we're not accelerating. We're not hitting at or above our weight. And one of the biggest reasons is that people with, you know, the disabled community, like when you ask Canadians, you know, how many people with disabilities are there in Canada? They'll go, well, I don't know, maybe a million. You know, they'll go, no, sorry, four, <laughs> four million, <laughs> yeah. one in seven. Uh, and that's adults. And uh, what? I don't see that. And well, that that's only yeah. if you don't you include don't, certain intellectual disabilities, you, I believe, too. They, yeah. And so and so then you go into then you go into, well, What's behind that is because everything's fragmented on uh, on clinical diagnosis, body part, disease orientation, or a, a whatever can point in the continuum from being in the hospital or somewhere into the community that you care about. And everything's fragmented and therefore underrepresented. And there are things that are visible, um, and there are many disabling uh, conditions that aren't visible. Mm-hmm. And then, then you look at the symbols of accessibility that exists in today's world. And well, tell me what's the symbol, the one symbol you see or you know about when you, uh, when you talk about accessibility in today's society, when you go up into a parking lot, yeah, it's uh, that white, you know, white, you, white wheelchair on a blue background, stick man in a wheelchair, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, there you go, you know, back to symbols and, and right. representation. Well, that represents, maybe 30% of, uh, of population, uh, you know, with disabilities, but not, not the whole. And as a matter of fact, if you have a placard, it has to be a stick man in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And now you step out of your car and you walk into the shop, you're getting, (laughs) you're getting cussed out by somebody, you know, because you're, you know, you're not in a wheelchair, but you you need it. And so kind of, probably speaks to the need to redesign fundamentally our symbol of accessibility for all. Right. Uh, you know, not a stick man in a wheelchair, not even a person in a wheelchair, maybe leaning forward and being in motion. Mm-hmm. It's a person in motion, a human being in motion where you can't really define what the disability as much, but it's a, uh, it's a form. It's our swoosh, right? You know, uh, and because that way everybody can see themselves in it. And it's really not about the disability. It's about, you know, removing the barrier so everybody can be in motion and uh, and fully contribute. All right, Rob. There's your, your next graphics project. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, absolutely. And it should be a design challenge. Uh, and, and somebody should recommend that to the UN and, uh, you know, and, and to the global community. And then we should have rights of passage to rebrand every every modification that represents mm-hmm. being inclusive yeah. to to that that entity and uh and it should sort of reflect the next generation of our attitudes and expectations that you know you, you think about you know maybe the idea of you know time lapsing uh, a wheelchair <laughs> a wheelchair symbol in a parking lot and having the traditional stigma of the person in the wheelchair get out and then 
and there's the the, 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 the person uh, who gets out and they're in a walker or cane and and there's a person you know who gets out you know and they you know, they're uh, they're in the passenger seat and they've got uh, you know is that the the guide dog and the and or the, the cane and and, uh, and they're blind and and then there's the you know the mum with the baby in the stroller and then there's the you know there's someone else getting out you know and, and bottom line is that, that you know that that ramp you know that was beside the wheelchair spot and then all of a sudden that that wheelchair symbol kind of breaks up as in real time and then it gets reformed you know into a, our swoosh and ultimately it's uh yeah it's, it's accessibility for everyone you know accessible design is good for everyone it's right. good for it's good for you know for workers uh you know who are having lifting heavy things moms with strollers you know and safer for for uh for uh for workers and uh and pedestrians and just makes sense but hey, we tend to keep sort of fragmenting our field and our community and i think that's why we're not hitting at or above our weight the reality is there's one one over one billion people on the planet today according to who living with a disability uh, world's largest minority and uh so let's opt in on the big barriers that that can really uh kind of kind of shake things up make progress to break through and uh, and be able to measure progress objectively in the form of like an index. So when someone says how how accessible is your city, <laughs> you know you you not only can see that someone has a plan, uh, but they actually can measure it and they can tell you because they they figured out how to measure it and it's relevant to other cities across Canada and around the world. Well, let me ask you this though: Does it surprise you that? Canada is still missing a comprehensive national disability legislation like uh, the ADA. And what do you, what are your thoughts on the proposed Accessible Canada Act? Yeah, it, it it does surprise me because Canada was probably one of the only countries in the world that, you know, in its constitution and charter, you know, stated when we brought it home in 82, uh, that this young country was going to be built on, you know, principles of, you know, equality for people with disabilities and inclusion. And that, that was a powerful statement. So you would expect that shortly after that would have been then, you know, the translation into legislation and, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, into a, you know, a, a sense of uh, enforcement, but maybe more importantly to move, beyond that so we didn't uh, just focus on minimum requirements uh, as a social safety net and I think again largely because we're, we, we never laddered up to really have enough force to make it feel like it was more than words back then you know largely you know disability was considered to be almost like a charity and so mm-hmm. the idea of human rights was uh, relatively uh, big and uh, and the leverage didn't didn't translate and so yeah other countries broke through and went ahead maybe not in their constitution but ADA and the Americans with Disabilities Act were returning veterans from the states joining from Vietnam joining uh, you know champions and advocates for the disabled and they pushed through and uh, and they put together ADA and and that was then you know implemented and a lot of progress happened a lot of litigation, a lot of you know, like a lot of confrontation, uh, a lot of legal activity, but uh, progress nevertheless happened. A lot of exemptions, a lot of you know, uh, 
maybe um, old models, you know, of access back in the 70s uh, and 80s when it was formed and then 90s, early 90s when it was implemented. Uh, so there's been a lot of renewed thinking since then, but maybe they have to now go back because a lot of people think they're there in the States, but they're really just beginning. And uh, and so other countries are, uh, are also breaking through. So Canada is catching up. Uh, we're also very fragmented jurisdictionally. Uh, you know, federal jurisdiction doesn't apply to everything provincial, and nor does nor does it at municipal or indigenous levels. So, we uh, we have to think about harmonized harmonized solutions, uh, where you know, even though you have a different jurisdiction, you can think mm-hmm. about uh, a standard that makes sense all across the country, and maybe, <laughs> heaven forbid, maybe a global standard that. You know, uh, people, uh, metrics, um, businesses, governments wanting to, you know, kind of coordinate, share knowledge and information ought to be there. So I think we're actually in a, even though we're late to the party, uh, we have provinces like, uh, you know, Ontario, who Mm -hmm. built something, uh, Manitoba, and now Nova Scotia. uh, And the federal government has implemented their legislation, uh, tabled it, I should say, after consultation and there'll be probably tweaks on all sides you know the disabled community will have issues or do have issues and uh business uh private sector will probably have concerns but at the end of the day it it'll be approved by uh, hopefully the early new year at the latest and and we'll start executing and uh and going forward and what really counts is that that they're not just another set of words because if you ask people in Ontario, they probably will say that, you know, over a decade ago, there were there were lots of great words in the legislation, but maybe they didn't feel that there's been as much traction as uh, as should have happened. And now they're really sort of worried and, uh, and trying to push enforcement. But I, I think enforcement and accountability is important and has to happen. But boy, what really ha- what really counts is that we get people to and above the line and beyond the line faster. So you know uh, we've got to also incent and inspire and enable people to to get there faster. And uh, I think that uh, that prevents uh, prevents a static statement, uh, you know, that will be embodied by today's standards being tomorrow's handicap. You know, our expectations today are very different than they were in the '80s and uh, and and they'll be very different in another 10 years. And so but we just got to get moving and, uh, and move to the line and beyond. And so I, I think it's going to be a positive, a really positive thing. Uh, the current government, you know, really should be uh, applauded for, you know, making the statement. Right. They really are the first to make the statement that they're going to do it. They've, they've consulted, they've tabled something, albeit not perfect. It'll shape again and then it'll be approved. And, and we can get moving forward and go beyond it. Knock on wood. Exciting times. Yes. Yep. Well, listen, uh, we should probably start to wrap up. Um, I mean, I don't know, as, as sort of fellow advocates for, for the idea of inclusion and uh, universal design and accessibility, I mean, I'd like to you know, personally thank you and the foundation for all the work that, that you've done um, over the years. And, and I'm sure you know, we'll continue to do. Well, thank you. And, 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 you know, we're, we're trying hard, we're learning, you know, we make mistakes, but we also, you know, keep trying to set the bar higher. And, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we just hope that, you know, whether it's, uh, 
you know, whether it's in British Columbia, whether it's the federal government, whether it's any other province, territory, municipality, or indigenous community, we can all start to harmonize on a, on a common standard that we think is uh, good enough right now to get going. And then we can all upgrade together and, uh, and every three to five years keep uh, up in the bar together as opposed to fragment the hell out of uh, the country even further and then having so many different interpretations of accessibility that we don't even know what we're talking about and the people right. we're targeting uh, are so confused they don't move because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. And that's, right. uh, that's got to change. We've got to we got to put the power into uh, you know the rest of the community, so they're trained, accredited, and uh, and then get a common uh, common rating and certification process where we can recognize people who are at or hopefully beyond the line and say that's the Canada we want. And yeah, there's lots of progress out there. Let's start focusing on uh, a lot of these great successes rather than you know trying to beat people up. Uh, you know, I think we can take the high ground and let others deal with the enforcement. Yeah, we absolutely can. Well, thanks, you guys, and I really appreciate what you're doing because you're spreading the word, and, you know, the more people, uh, you know, that prevent, uh, you know, uh, negative attitudes and also inspire people to alternative solutions uh, and great stories of uh, of hope and inspiration. You guys uh, keep moving the bar, and so I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you well, thank very you. much, and it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah. Oh, one one thing before I let you go. Um, yep. my chiropractor, Scott Morrison said to say hello to you. <laughs> he apparently grew up with you in uh, Williams Lake and, uh, yeah, well, and, uh, I, I guess world. his, his, awesome. his brother dated well, your sister you know, or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, uh, uh, so such a cool thing that, you know, I've been, uh, you know, this isn't an endorsement for Kairos, but, uh, I'll tell you what, I've, I've been seeing, I've been seeing a Kairo for 40 years and guys like Scott, They've uh, saved my life many times as far as, you know, uh, changing, uh, you know, uh, from a pain and uh, suffering point of view to feeling like you're uh, able to keep moving forward. So uh, tell them I said to say a big hi and, uh, <laughs> and keep doing great work. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Take All care. right, sir. Thanks. Right, thank thank you. you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Bye. All now. right. Bye-bye. Take care. Hmm. Well, there you go, Ryan. There you go. That was a great interview. That was, was good. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like he uh, speaks publicly for a living. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, not only that, I mean, honestly, the guy's been tireless in yeah. in, in the work that he's done. Um, I don't think he sleeps. <laughs> I really don't think he sleeps. He I don't think he's slept. He, he, he probably does. It all, um, <laughs> but he's so right about, you know, the idea of universal design. I mean, I, I feel like lay people you know, look at government buildings, they look at wheelchair ramps and they go, yeah, yeah, we've come, we've come a long way. Well, yeah, we've got, for, we've got, we've got Braille on the elevators. We've got some ramps. Like, we're good. Unless you're, like, Trump, yeah, unless you're Trump, Trump for, tower. For years, those have been the bars, right? Yeah. It's like, can somebody get through the front door and can somebody blind operate the elevator? And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's, yeah, you that's know, it. And, and, and maybe, maybe if you're lucky, a wheelchair accessible washroom. washroom. Yeah. But even the washrooms that are designated as wheelchair accessible oftentimes are not functional for people in something like a power chair right right you know i go places with uh with my buddy darren he's in a power chair and okay yeah they've got a wheelchair accessible washroom but he can't actually turn his chair around in it right yeah Yeah. you know and that's kind of important yeah (laughs) 
So yeah, well, and like Rick was saying, you know, even just getting up onto a stage in a school Rick auditorium. You're on a first name basis. Mm-hmm. That's right, Mister Hanson. That's right, Mister Hanson. There you go. Yeah, I didn't see you calling him Rick when he was here. <laughs> <laughs> now he's Rick all of a sudden. I'll give him a call Friday. Yeah, we'll go for beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, he's so right. Like we don't even think about school auditoriums. You know. Yeah. We don't even think about lunch rooms. We don't even think about the baseball diamond dugouts. Yeah. Well, when he was talking about that, you know, I was thinking back to my high school and mm-hmm. you know, the, I never saw a kid in a wheelchair in my high school. Not, not we, once. We did, but they went, they had special classrooms. They weren't integrated. Right. And you know, in ours, we, we had, uh, we had a blind girl, uh, in our, in our school. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, nobody in a wheelchair and they, they wouldn't have been able to navigate the school because no. we had, you know, you, you walk in the front door, there was a, um, you know, there were, stairs up to the front door. Right. There was, I don't think there was a wheelchair ramp. Um, I, there was a ground level entrance, but I think it was at the gym. And then I don't think you could really go anywhere from there Hmm. other than across the gym. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, the the real frustrating part about it is I'm sure is that, you know, it's, it's the notion it's universal design itself really needs to be attached to a mindset way early, like at the design. Oh yeah. You know, when, when that architect is sitting, coming up with the blueprints, that's where universal design needs to be implemented. Yeah. You know, this idea that accessibility is just something that you tack on to something. Yeah. It can't be a retrofit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we've seen time and time again that that, that just doesn't work. That's the least, I mean, it's something, but it's you know far from the ideal. So you know, the key is you've got to get the sense of universal design and the all the benefits behind universal design um, at at the start at that design process. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked about it in in the past about just curb cuts and how that benefits everybody, women and with kids and strollers. It, it's not just you know people in wheelchairs; it benefits everybody. Listen, yeah. I'm not the only able-bodied person that's gone up a wheelchair <laughs> ramp just because I've been too lazy to walk up the stairs. Exactly. Honestly, yeah. like, <laughs> let's be totally honest. Yeah. Done it lots. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Accessibility benefits the lazy. There you go. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's everybody. And I'm betting the statistics for lazy people are really high. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. for sure. It's just everybody's been too lazy to look them up. But you know what? <laughs> but not only that, like what, you know, I, I love, and I forget who said it, but the whoever it was, I, I sorry, I can't give you credit, for, but whoever it was that said basically, you know, every person on the planet at some time in their life is going to yeah. need some sort of assistive technology or benefit from some sort of universal universal design. Sorry, I've had tequila. I've been like, <laughs> starting to slur. Universal design. Uh, because, you know, whether it be you broke your leg and you're on crutches for, for three weeks, mm-hmm. you know what, yeah. for three weeks, you have, you have physical limitations. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Yep. Uh, everybody's going to be in that. So universal design is just benefits everybody. It's Hockey Night in Canada starring. Thank God. Thank God whoever that was didn't call during Rick. <laughs> well, look, now I'm, now I'm calling him Rick. <laughs> We're all buddies. Yeah, we'll go for beers on one Friday night or something. Reach out yeah, to that's him. right. He's in town. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, whew. well. Uh, anyways, uh, he's so, at loss of words now. <laughs> I know. I just I, 
Okay. <clears throat> hey, Rock. Hey, Ryan. Hey, who? What? <laughs> hey, Rock. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to get you. What up, bro? <laughs> trying to get you on another giggle. Oh, I see. Giggle rant. No. Uh, hey, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find us? They can find us in my basement or at atbanter.com. Uh, they can also find, no, they can also email us if they so desire, atbanterpodcast at gmail.com. They can. Where can they find Canadian Assistive Technology? No, we're Whoa, wait a second. Whoa, we're not, we're not even there yet. close to oh, that. Well, no. Let's rewind. Yeah. Stop the clock. Okay. No, we got to talk about where else you can find oh, well, you AT know. Banter because you can also find AT Banter on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. That's correct. But you know, what? you can also find us on Spotify and TuneIn and Apple Music and Google Play Music. You can find us everywhere. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which yep. is why we can compile no statistics because we've got no idea how many people are listening at any given time. Uh, hey, what about Canadian Assistive Technology? Where can people find them if they are so inclined to... Canadian Assistive Technology can be found online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com. Or you can phone us at 1-844-795-8324. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yes, we're very excited. We now uh, offer accessible furniture. That's right. We've really excited we've signed to up with uh, Populous Furniture to do the uh, ADAS line of either. Oh, let's see. They've got peg raised. They've got crank raised. They've got motorized. They've got kitchen cabinets that raise and lower, uh, sinks that raise and lower. We got it all. Wow. Oh yeah, they got all kinds of crazy stuff. And workbench. Mm-hmm. They got uh, ergonomic workbenches, workstations, yeah. yeah, tables. You name it. It, they've got it all and it's all customizable you can get you know, cable runs and power bars and pretty colors pretty colors yeah mm-hmm. yeah different tabletop finishes probably speakers mounted into the top of the table mm, they don't have that as an option but you know i could probably talk them into it probably yeah mm. a table with alexa built into it yeah Hey, did you listen? Or a virtual reality <laughs> tabletop? That's not that far away. Keep, we keep dropping glasses through it. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I thought it was a real table again. <laughs> hey, Alexa, pass the salt. <laughs> the robotic hand. Com- Anyways, okay. Uh, where where are we? Uh, digressing. Hey, we are no, digressing. Uh, uh, I know, we're all just giddy after that, after that interview. Uh, where can people find Chaos Technical Services? Well, our dear friend Rick Chant, who uh, is uh, shortly to return from Africa. Actually, but when this airs, he will have returned from mm-hmm. Africa. Uh, he can be found at www.chaostechnicalservices.com. That's all one word, believe it or not. And uh, you can email him at uh, rick at chaostech.com. Uh, incorrect. Incorrect. Chaos Tech at Shaw.ca. And you can also email him at chaostech at Shaw.ca. That's right. And if, if you got a piece of assistive technology that is broken or needs a new battery or just don't know worky. Maybe a little polishing. Just give him a call. I don't know. Now that uh, now that we're good buddies with, uh, with Rick? Rick Hansen, uh, we might have to. We're gonna be, we have two Ricks in our lives. 
Yeah, I think the I, I think Rick Chant is probably the one that's more in our lives. <laughs> probably R- Rick Hansen, we admire from afar. For now. <laughs> well, now that he knows how cool you are, right? You think I'm done? <laughs> now that you found him, you're going to become his stalker. No, I won't do that to him. Ah. Uh... Okay, I guess that's going to be do it for us. This I that, listen. That's going to be guys not to give me gonna tequila. Be, that's going to be that's do all it for us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've had like four sips and they've gone straight to my head. Uh, hey, <laughs> where can people find us? <laughs> no, I think we did that part. <laughs> oh, Rob Snorton now. All right, oh God. Pull it, pull okay, it together, right, people. Right. It's the Rick Hansen episode. Pull it together. Okay. All right, everybody, thanks so much for listening in once again. We'll see everybody. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com. Or call us toll-free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Music provided by bensound.com. Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take.